last investigator I chatted with was Dr. Jonathan Letterman, who commented on ASCO papers on ovarian cancer, beginning with perhaps the most important such presentation, a randomized phase 3 trial of chemo with or without bevacizumab in platinum-resistant disease. The Aurelia study is actually the third of a sequence of randomized trials of bevacizumab and chemotherapy in ovarian cancer, the first being in first-line treatment, the second being in first relapse. And this very interesting study was done in patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. So this is a group of women who really don't have very many therapeutic options available. We usually use one of three types of drugs in these patients, such as liposomal doxorubicin, paclitaxel, or topatecan. And what was done in this trial was to use one of those three drugs, which was really the choice of the physician, with or without bevacizumab. And so it was a randomized phase three trial, choosing one of those chemotherapy regimens in women who we would not expect to have a very good response to chemotherapy, and adding in bevacizumab. And the results of this study really were very exciting, in my view. I think perhaps the most exciting of all the randomized trials that we've yet seen with bevacizumab. And what it showed was that there was a significant improvement in the progression-free survival in patients who received chemotherapy and bevacizumab. And that was an extension of the progression, median progression-free survival from 3.4 months to 6.7 months, a hazard ratio of 0.48, which is highly significant. What about bowel perforation? So one of the things that one takes particular note of in patients receiving bevacizumab, particularly in patients with recurrent ovarian cancer, is this unusual but potentially very serious complication of intestinal perforation. And this, we know, occurs more frequently in patients who've got a lot of intra-abdominal visceral disease affecting small and large bowel. So to some extent, the investigators were careful in the selection of patients and excluded those patients who had a lot of disease, particularly affecting the rectosigmoid colon. But it was very pleasing to see that in the toxicity analysis, there were really very few serious untoward events related to the bevacizumab in particular, the incidence of gastrointestinal style perforation was really very low and not majorly different from the control arm. Otherwise, the treatment was well tolerated. Um, Hypertension is always something that one has to watch out for, and it did occur as expected, but none of this was worse than we're familiar with with other bevacizumab studies. As expected, the least active of those drugs is topotecan, and probably the best is paclitaxel. As we now know, weekly paclitaxel is really the preferred schedule of treatment in patients with recurrent ovarian cancer. And the difference of 3.9 to 10.44, a hazard ratio of 0.46. Interestingly, the hazard ratio for topotecan was 0.32, but I think this is really just a reflection of the fact that the drug on its own is not very active. And the bevacizumab was able to stabilize the disease in those patients who did not respond very well to topotecan. So this is, to my mind, a very interesting study. Of course, what we really are awaiting are the overall survival figures. And I think they will be out by next year when enough events have occurred. And, you know, unfortunately, in this group of patients, survival is not that long because these are patients who are platinum resistant and there are very few chemotherapy options available to them after this. 
So this will be really interesting data, and I think we just need to wait on that. I think what we don't understand sufficiently is what the value of improved progression-free survival is to women when there is no overall survival benefit. And I think that's something we really do need to study. And I don't think any of us have really addressed that. So, you know, it's a question of balancing that prolongation of treatment, which is maintenance treatment, which gives you a longer period of time until your next chemotherapy. But in the end, the survival is no different. So, you know, what are the various merits and drawbacks of doing that? I think we do need to study that better. And we need to get better information from women in terms of quality of life and symptoms on and off treatment to understand that better. But I'm optimistic that there will be a survival benefit in the Aurelia study. I think we do have to wait. As far as the other two studies are concerned, I don't think there will be a difference in survival in the ocean study. We've seen interim analyses that really show no separation of the survival curves. And I don't think that's going to change. As far as the first-line studies are concerned, well, in GOG 218, we won't see it because there was a break in the blind at the time of the PFS analysis and a lot of patients crossed over, and that will, of course, affect the overall survival. In the ICON-7 trial, there was no crossover, virtually no crossover in any of the patients because of the lack of availability of bevacizumab. And what we've seen so far in the subgroup of patients with poorer prognosis, that there is an emerging survival difference, but we do need to wait until the mature data are available. Again, that should be available next year, and we will then see whether there is a survival advantage in the subgroup of patients with poorer prognosis. What about the issue of BEV monotherapy? As far as single-agent therapy, well, of course, the arm that was missing from the Aurelia study was a bevacizumab alone arm, and it would be interesting to see what that did in terms of progression-free survival. We know from the phase two studies that have been done with bevacizumab, or they're not randomized studies, and one can criticize them in terms of selections and so forth, that there was a response rate of around about 16 to 24%, which actually is as good, if not better, than any of the treatments that we see in that group of patients. And when we look at the response rates in the randomized Aurelia study, they certainly were higher in the bevacizumab group compared to chemotherapy alone, suggesting that bevacizumab on its own, as it were, has a response rate that may well be meaningful. So as response rate is only a surrogate for progression-free survival and overall survival, it's a surrogate of activity, I think it would have been very interesting to have had a bevacizumab alone arm in that trial. What about the Octavia trial looking at safety with carbobev and weekly paclitaxel? As far as the Octavia trial is concerned, well, that is quite interesting because we are shifting the way in which we use paclitaxel in the frontline treatment of ovarian cancer. So I think it's very important that we get some information about the use of bevacizumab with weekly paclitaxel, which is what the Octavia study was really all about. So it was a single arm study, and it was really to see whether or not you could safely combine bevacizumab with weekly paclitaxel and standard three-weekly carboplatin. And the study which was done as a sort of collaboration between a number of trial groups within Europe really just set out to make sure that that was a safe thing to do. So this sort of leads into abstract 5003, looking at the issue of dose-dense paclitaxel carbo. Well, this 
dose-dense paclitaxel is really, you know, until we started to see data emerging from the molecular targeted agents in the last two or three years, was really one of the most startling results that we saw some years ago, presented initially at ASCO and then published in 2009 in The Lancet. And this was just taking a very simple approach, which actually was not unique. It had been looked at, particularly in breast cancer, uh, and I think in lung cancer too. But it was doing it in the context of a randomized trial, comparing our standard carboplatin and paclitaxel with carboplatin and dose-dense weekly paclitaxel. So when this study was first reported, the median follow-up was around about 30 months, I think. And what it showed was that there was a significant improvement both in progression-free survival and the three-year overall survival. And what this group have now done, they've carried on collecting data, and they've presented the mature data with a follow-up, a median follow-up of 6.4 years. And what they've shown is that the effect that they saw in the initial follow-up has been maintained and that the progression-free survival difference with 6.4 years median follow-up is 17.5 months compared to 28.2 months. And there is still a survival difference between the two arms at five years, 51.1% as against 58.7%. So that is really, from the point of view of chemotherapy without molecular-targeted therapy added in is really an amazing observation. It's probably the biggest difference we've seen in survival in frontline treatment since the GOG-111 study with paclitaxel many, many years ago. So it's quite intriguing to think why that happened. And perhaps I'll come on to that in a minute. But just before I do, I just want to say that the treatment effect was seen both in patients with good prognosis disease, that is to say with residual disease of less than one centimetre diameter at surgery, and those with greater than one centimetre diameter. So it was seen across those two main types. There are issues in terms of tolerability. Of course, there's no break in treatment for these patients. They get weekly paclitaxel throughout the 18 weeks, and some actually went on a little bit longer than that. And so there are things that we do have to consider about that in terms of the dose of paclitaxel and how one manages the toxicity and so on. But generally, it is a manageable regimen, but more importantly, it shows a significant benefit in survival. So... The question is, you know, is this sufficient to make us change clinical practice? And I think on both sides of the Atlantic, we felt even before we saw the updated data, not yet. And so in the US, the GOG-262 trial was conducted more or less to repeat the Japanese study with some variation. And similarly, on this side of the Atlantic, through the ICON group, we launched ICON-8, which is an international trial that again compares three weekly standard carboplatin paclitaxel with the Japanese regimen. And we've added in a third arm, which is weekly carboplatin and weekly paclitaxel to see whether or not we can modify the toxicity of the Japanese regimen without losing any efficacy. So that trial is currently recruiting. But of course, as all this happened, we then started to see the results of the bevacizumab studies and the question is, you know, firstly, can you put bevacizumab in with the weekly paclitaxel? And the answer we've seen in the Octavia study is yes, you can. And I would add that in the GOG262 trial, bevacizumab was allowed and about 85% of patients from memory elected to have bevacizumab during that study. But the critical question is, why 
is the weekly paclitax cell working? What is it doing that's producing an improvement in survival? And one of the suggestions that's been put forward is that paclitaxel, in addition to its effect on microtubules, may have some anti-angiogenic activity. And it may be this that's producing the differences that we're seeing. We now, with the ICON group, are faced with a dilemma because in Europe, bevacizumab is now licensed for use in first-line therapy. And although many jurisdictions are not funding it, some are, and that, of course, may affect physicians' decisions about whether to enroll patients in this dose-dense trial or to offer them bevacizumab. So we're trying at the moment to renegotiate and redesign our trial, the ICON-8 trial, so that we would have an arm that would be the straightforward Japanese arm without bevacizumab and include the Japanese dose-dense regimen plus bevacizumab, comparing it to carboplatin, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab. And it's only in that design would we be able to really see whether there was a difference between the standard Japanese regimen without bevacizumab and the other two regimens with bevacizumab. But that's quite a tricky one, as you can imagine, from the point of view of funding, to get a trial running that will have a no bevacizumab arm in it. Maybe we'll touch a little bit on the issue of mutations in ovarian cancer, but I wanted to get your take, particularly with your recent New England Journal paper on Erlaparib, on presentation 5001, looking at Erlaparib plus paclitaxel carbo followed by Erlaparib maintenance. Okay, so this is a sort of study that, in a sense, adds very much to the information that we already have on Elaprib. So the study you're referring to was the one that I led in study 19, which was the maintenance study, which we published in the New England Journal earlier this year. But this one was Elaprib combined with chemotherapy in patients with platinum-sensitive relapse, followed by maintenance. So it added in the combination of chemotherapy and elaparib, as well as the maintenance. And it was a randomized phase two study. And it was looking at a number of different aspects. Clearly, it needed to find out whether it was feasible to add in elaparib and chemotherapy. And as you may know from the design of this study, there had to be compromises in terms of both the carboplatin dose, which was reduced to an AUC of four compared to an AUC of six, and the length of treatment of elaparib in each cycle, which was not continuous as it was when we did the maintenance study, but it was only for 10 days out of every 21-day cycle. And thirdly, the dose of elaparib was reduced from the more standard 400 milligrams twice daily maintenance to 200 milligrams twice daily during the chemotherapy. So those were the compromises and obviously wanted to look very closely at the toxicity of the combined arms and the chemotherapy. But of course, there's the maintenance effect, which is what we looked at specifically in study 19. Uh, what the trial showed was actually not dissimilar from the study 19. There was a highly significant difference in the progression-free survival hazard ratio of 0.51 in favor of chemotherapy and elaparib. And when you look at the progression-free survival curves, you can see that they start to diverge at around about six months after randomization, which is, of course, the time when the chemotherapy stops and the maintenance elaparib continues. And it's really at that point that you start to see that separation, which to my mind says, really is that the main effect that you're seeing of elaparib is on the maintenance phase rather than the chemotherapy phase. 
And in support of that, if you look at some of the other endpoints that were looked at and the response rate and so forth, although numerically there is a slightly higher overall response rate in the elaparib and platinum arms, it's only a little bit different. So I think the main effect that you see in this study is on the maintenance side of things. I've got to say, one of the more interesting graphics I saw in the whole ASCO meeting was the waterfall plot in this study. And the thing that was interesting to me was, you know, first I looked at the waterfall plot with the elaborate chemo arm, and it looked pretty good. You know, everything, most of the patients seemed to go down. But the thing that was interesting to me is I don't remember seeing too many waterfall plots with chemo alone. It's kind of been more of a novel agent thing. Yes. And actually, you know, with the chemo alone, most of these patients, the, the waterfall plot looks pretty good. It does. It does. And I think, you know, these are a group of women with platinum sensitive relapse where we would expect around about a 50% response rate, which we saw actually a bit more than that. And that's the sort of distribution that you might see some very good responses, some complete remissions, some good partial responses, and then some that have only a minor response. It's just, as you say, we don't often see that because it's something that's really crept in with the molecular targeted agents. You know, I think there's been a lot of loss of enthusiasm in PARP inhibitors since the breast cancer situation sort of tanked out. But I always have been fascinated by what's been seen with olaparib in ovarian cancer. I mean, it looks pretty impressive. It kind of looks, you know, from a clinician's point of view, people look at some of the trials that have been done, including yours, and go, hmm, you know, I kind of wish I had this available. Is it going to ever be available? I think the answer to that is definitely yes. I think there have been some hiccups, as you know, and there was the press release that came out in response really to our interim survival analysis. And I do stress it is an interim survival analysis that we did on study 19. We'll have the data ready for ASCO of next year. But it may be, coming back to what we were talking about earlier on, that the overall survival benefit is small or non-existent. There may just be a trend towards overall survival benefit, but the main effect is in progression-free survival. Now, having said that, of course, we had in our study a mixed population of patients who had a BRCA germline mutation and those that were just high-grade serous cancer. And of course, we designed the study really to test whether or not olaparib might be active in patients with high-grade serous cancer who had the phenotype that's sometimes called the BRCA-NES phenotype, who had a high probability of homologous recombination deficiency, which we know is really the hallmark of a sensitivity to a PARP inhibitor. And really, when we designed study 19, it was to be inclusive with those high-grade serious patients and not specifically to go out and look for the BRCA population. And of course, from a company's perspective, that's even more interesting because it means there's a greater number of patients, perhaps up to 50% of patients, who might benefit from a PARP inhibitor. But it may well be that we've slightly sort of run before we can walk, and I think we need to look a little bit more closely at the differences between the patients with germline BRCA mutations and those with that BRCA-NES HRD phenotype, high-grade serous cancer, who don't have the BRCA mutations. So what we're doing at the moment with the study 19 patient material is we're going back and we are looking at the BRCA mutations in those patients to see whether there are differences in terms of the progression-free survival and indeed the overall survival in those patients with BRCA mutations. If you go back to the presentation that I made at ASCO last year in the New England Journal paper, you can see, although the numbers are very small because it was before we did that analysis, that actually the hazard ratio for the BRCA positive patients was 0.1, which is very low indeed. So we need to wait and see, and we will have that information ready for ASCO of next year. 
So it seems like every year at ASCO in ovarian cancer, you see at least two or three novel agents, either that you never heard of before or you'd heard in other tumors pop up. And the three I wanted to just briefly ask you about, first of all, there's a phase two study looking at ramucirumab, something we've heard about in gastric cancer and HCC, kind of interesting agent in terms of how it works and anti-angiogenic. Then there was a paper looking at something, of course, we heard a lot about myeloma, lymphoma, lenalidomide. Right. So, you know, ovarian cancer is a disease that's very sensitive to drugs. And for those of us who've been working in the field of ovarian cancer for many, many years, will remember that drugs like, you know, carboplatin and indeed paclitaxel first received its license in ovarian cancer. It is a good disease in which to test these novel agents because it responds typically very well. And it's a shame, actually, that in some ways there was some delay in looking at drugs like bevacizumab in ovarian cancer for all sorts of different reasons. So I'm you know, not surprised to see activity in some of these phase two studies. Of course, ovarian cancer, from what we know about bevacizumab, is very much a VEGF-driven type tumor. VEGF is important in ovarian cancer. And so this study with ramucirumab binding the VEGF receptor is, of course, a logical thing to do. Whether or not it's going to be any better than a drug like bevacizumab, of course, remains unknown. But it was well-tolerated. It has single-agent activity. And, of course, the problem with all these single-arm studies is, you know, your selection of patients and so on. But I think what we can glean from this study is very much what we learned from the very early phase GOG-170-type studies with bevacizumab, that it does seem to have an effect on prolonging progression-free survival. So I think it's certainly something worth looking at. It's kind of a cool mechanism too, because it's the antibody to the receptor, whereas BEV and the VEGF trap of Flibrocept bind the ligand. Yes, that's right. And I mean, it's not the only study out there. We, as you may know, have just completed ICON-6, which is a study with sidirinib that's a VEGF receptor targeting kinase inhibitor, and hope to have the results of that ready for ASCO of next year. So I think that there's a lot of interest in blocking VEGF receptor, either with an antibody or with a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Any comments about the issue of lenalidomide? Well, again, you know, lenalidomide and thalidomide-type drugs, again, affect angiogenesis, an important component of ovarian cancer growth. And so there's a logic to looking at drugs like lenalidomide in ovarian cancer. And this was very much an early phase study, phase two trial, looking at that. And there was some activity seen. So again, you know, it's very difficult to know where to fit that in. But I think what's important from these studies is actually to do randomized phase two studies. I think that there's a limited amount of information that we can get from non-randomized phase two studies. And I really think it's worth the extra effort, the extra number of patients. And it's not that great. Usually you can get a reasonable signal of activity of these molecular targeted drugs in between 80 and 100 patients. So it's only double the size of the studies they've done. There are plenty of these patients around and you can collaborate with different groups and get these answers very quickly. And I think it's a shame that we're seeing these single-arm phase two studies because I think we're missing a lot of important information and a lot of the information that we'd like to interpret may be affected by patient selection and all sorts of other criteria, which you'd lose if you had a randomized study.